Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So we are uh, going through 1 Samuel 26 and 27 today. We're working through the whole book. Uh, we should be done with the book by the end of this month, and then we'll go into 2 Samuel, which is an exciting story because that's primarily focused just on King David as he steps into this role. He'll be in that role by, um, by the end of this book and the beginning of the next book. <clears throat> but last week, uh, we talked about this concept of obeying the Lord and, and, and disobeying the Lord. We, we discussed this idea of the difference between something that's wise and something that's foolish. So today's message is kind of like a cousin of last week's message. It builds off of last week's message. If you didn't hear last week's message, you certainly can get something out of today, but it definitely builds off of last week's message. And the idea from last week is that when the Word of God asks us to be obedient, when God says, this is the way I want things to work, I want you to do this, being obedient to his commands isn't just a good thing to do. It comes with it these deep roots and consequences that cascade after the obedience. An example, the word of God says, thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't lie. Okay, well, if you're gonna be obedient to that command and you're gonna live a truthful life, the consequences and the deep roots that come about from living a truthful life, they extend beyond just the you not lying. You not lying means that you develop a reputation of not lying. It means that in your social circles, people start knowing you as a person who tells the truth. And not just a person who tells the truth, but a person that can be trusted. And because you're a person who can be trusted, your character develops in the eyes of your peers, and you're the person that people go to when they want to know the truth because they know you don't lie. You see what I'm saying? There are deep roots and consequences to obeying God's word. The consequences being you develop this reputation among the people as a person of character that people can trust. How do you get there? You obey God's word. But the other side of that is disobeying God's word. If God says, don't commit adultery, the idea of don't commit adultery, disobedience to that command, it's not like it's, it's just like, okay, well, doing that, it's a bad idea. No, no, it is, it is way worse than a bad idea. Because what happens is when you disobey that command, if you were to say, okay, God says don't lie, but I'm, I'm, gonna, be, I'm gonna be a liar. I'm go, I'm, I have to lie in this circumstance. Or God says be faithful to your spouse and don't commit adultery, but I'm gonna do it anyway. There are deep roots and consequences to the disobedience, just like there's deep roots and consequences to the obedience. The deep roots and consequences to the disobedience means you start living in a marriage where everything is, like everyone's walking on eggshells. And the idea that if, if you're disobeying in the area of lying, the, when you lie, then you don't have to just uh, uh, lie about that one lie. All of a sudden now you're lying about the lie that you told previously. 
And pretty soon, your entire world starts being this lie. You see where I'm going with this? So the idea that the Word of God portrays obedience to God's Word as wise unravels this whole understanding of why we obey. We obey not just because it's the right thing to do, we obey because it's wise. Because with obedience comes these unbelievable benefits and rewards. And, we, and if we disobey God's word, we're not just doing something wrong and, and we're a, a, a bad boy or bad girl and God's gonna punish us, no. There is also these cascading effects that come with disobedience that unravel in your life and then pretty soon you don't even recognize yourself anymore. That's the contrast in the word of God between wise and foolish. And that's why it goes beyond this idea, well, well, he told me to do this, so I have to just obey this. I was going to grip my teeth and it's going to do what God told me to do. No, he's asking you to do that not just so that you'll do it, but so that you'll live in blessing and not in curses because there are things tied to your obedience and your disobedience that will not just affect you, but they will start affecting the people around you. And that is the whole idea that we're studying today. As we go into 1 Samuel 27 and 28, we're gonna look at David and Saul who both made decisions that had deep roots and consequences to those decisions. Now before we get into the word today, I wanna to give you a map to kind of give you uh, an orientation of where we are. So let's throw that up there. This is uh, the globe. We're gonna zoom in on that area there in the Middle East. It's gonna populate Israel. I've zoomed out a little bit from the normal map that we've been typically using, so the, uh, the distance is a little bit different. This is about a 30-mile distance, but where we're covering today in 2728 mentions all of these cities. Now, that big red blob, I put that up there so that you have an understanding of the expanse of King Saul's kingdom at this period of time. Now, he's coming to the end of his life. He's gonna get some really bad news in today's message about him dying. But at the end of his life, after all is said and done, this is how much land he was over as the king. The northern area referred to affectionately as Israel. The northern or the southern kingdom referred to affectionately as Judah. They haven't split yet. That will come after Solomon passes away and his son essentially splits the kingdom. But at this point, it's all Israel, but the tribe of Judah had the most land and so they often referred to the area of Judah as Judah, even though it was included in Israel. Now, at below Judah, there's this tribe called the Kenites, and you see over here on the, down to the bottom left, you've got the Negeb, you've got the Amalekites, the Jeshurites, the Gerzites. These are all tribes, the Amalekites, Jeshurites, and the Gerzites. Those are all tribes um, uh, that are not Israel. They are foreign tribes. You'll find out why we're bringing them up in a little bit. The Negeb is a region in southern Israel. And then you've got over on the far left, this other region that I didn't color it in because it, it, it kind of covers that whole left-hand side of the, the map there over here. You've got the Philistines. 
And they've, they've kind of been the villain in the story so far. God's used them to save David once, but they're, they're, the Philistines are where Goliath came from. Their main city is the city of Gath. And what we're gonna find here is David is gonna go over and start uh, hanging out with the enemy and living in the area of the Philistines out of Israel just to get away from Saul. And he gets a little town to himself where his um, family and all of the men that are following him get to live, and that's called in Ziklag. So that's just down here in the south. At the end, they're gonna go up here to the north. There's gonna be the uh, very beginning of this battle up in this area of Shunem and Gilboa. Gilboa is actually just off to the side here. It's a mountain. Shunem is the city, but that's, I put them together because that's the region we're gonna be. And then there's gonna be this other situation up here where you've got this place called Endor. All right, now Endor is a forest moon, and that's where the, never mind, I'm just kidding. For those of you that got it, you're welcome. For those of you who didn't, I promise you didn't miss anything. Uh, Endor is a city up there in the north. There's a witch that lives there, and we're gonna get into it pretty soon. So just kind of commit this to memory. I'll post this on Slack afterwards, and I'll make sure that uh, you have access to it. I've also been con contemplating just kind of adding this to the website. Just show of hands, would you appreciate having access to the maps on the website? Okay, I'll start adding those too, okay. So uh, let's get into it. We're gonna start in 1 Samuel 27. We're gonna go to verse one. says, David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. All right, so David has decided that he can't stay safe in Israel any longer. He has to go over to the land of the Philistines in order to survive. So David arose, verse two, and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Ahish the son of Moach, the king of Gath. And David lived with Ahish in Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. All right, so it worked. So when Saul found out he's overhanging with the Philistines, Saul stopped pursuing David. So David said to Ahish, I have found favor in your eyes, excuse me, if I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given uh, me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there, for why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day, Ahish gave him Ziklag, that was the uh, city I just showed you on the map, that was south of Gath. Therefore, Ziklag has be, uh, belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And that's a little clue that, give, that tells us that this story wasn't written down until much later. The first half of it was re probably recorded by Samuel, but then Samuel passed away. Who writes it next? Probably Nathan and probably Gad, the prophets, and they probably wrote it down sometime during the time of David or after his death when it was the time of the kings. Verse seven, the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerizites, and the Amalekites. 
For these were the inhabitants of the land of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. So he would go down south and he would conquer and, and raid the cities that were outside of Jerusalem or outside of Israel. These were enemies of Israel. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments and come back to Ahish. And when Ahish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negeb of Judah, against the Negeb of the Jeheramalites, or against the Negeb of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Ahish trusted David thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he will always be my servant. So just a quick synopsis, David decides in his heart that he is gonna be most safe, not staying in Judah, but going over into the land of the Philistines. And he makes a deal with the king of the Philistines. If you give me land and an area to live, I'll work for you. And the king says, all right, the work is you have to raid Israel. But David's character is that of, um, he's not gonna kill his own people. So what he decides instead is to go raid the enemies of Israel. And while he's raiding these villages, kill everybody in the village come back and tell the king that he raided some area in Israel and there's nobody left to prove that he's lying. Now, the question that we have as we read this is, what is going on? Is David's decision to move over to the Philistines a wise decision or a foolish decision? Now the answer to that question depends on what commentary you read or what pastor is preaching the message because I've heard it mentioned two ways. One is that this account is an example of David being wise. Living with the Philistines was a wise decision. The reason why is because one, he had no other choice. Saul would have killed him. He had to move over to the Philistines. Two. God is clearly using the Philistines to protect David, and the text doesn't say anywhere in, the in these 12 verses that David was actually sinning. Now, I find that approach to be wrong. <laughs> I don't know any other way to say it. And the reason why I find that to be wrong is because as you're reading through these 12 verses, what seems to be painted to us is David making a foolish decision, not a wise decision? I'll, I'll give you some examples of why. I think that this is an example of a foolish decision because even though the text doesn't say that David, what David is doing is committing a sin, we can clearly see that what he's doing is sinful. It starts in verse one. In verse one, it says, David said in his heart, I'm gonna perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. This decision was made in David's heart, not God's heart. God didn't tell David to go over to the Philistines and live. He decided that that was his last chance. In fact, the last thing that we see God telling David back in 1 Samuel 22:5 is that I want you to live in Judah. He told him specifically, I want you living in Judah. And God, David has decided in his heart, 
I think the only decision I have left is to move over to the Philistines. Yeah, but what about the last thing God told you to do? Live in Judah. He's not considering that. So that's the first thing that I would use as an example to say that this is um, an example of David being foolish. The second would be the argument that, that God used the Philistines to protect David. I would argue that God didn't use the Philistines to protect David. David used the Philistines to protect himself. If anybody's using somebody, it's David using the Philistines, and it came at the cost of David having to become a servant of the Philistines. David is supposed to be servant of Yahweh. He's supposed to be God's man, and now he's the king of the Philistines' man. And not only that, it brought him to a place where the lies that he was telling himself and his own heart started extending out to um, the king and also to his own men to the point where he had to go in and raid these cities, lie about where he's been, and literally kill every single person in the entire town so that no one would discover his lie. Now there is precedent for God sending his army into the promised land and saying there are certain tribes that I want you to completely, utterly destroy. But again, this is not God commanding David to do this. This is David doing this so that no one will discover his lie. He's building lies upon lies upon lies. And the last argument that I would cite is that the idea that David didn't have any more choices, he had to go live in Philistines. Well, what about all the other opportunities that God had, or what about all the other situations where God had already previously saved him? Do those not count when we're weighing the decision? When you're trying to make the choice, what do I need to do? Do I move over here or do I stay here? Well, what factors in that decision? Doesn't God's previous faithfulness factor into your decisions about what he's gonna do next? He has not let you down in the past, so why would you assume in your own heart that you have no other choices? He did have other choices. He could have stayed put and let God continue to show himself faithful and save David over and over. So I would argue, based off of these 12 chapters, is that David is living in sin for 16 months in Ziklag and the reason why I say this is because I've met many Davids like this David. Here's how it starts. And it may start in, this, this may become familiar and it might sting a little bit, so just bear with me. It starts like this. It starts at always. It always starts in your own heart. You say to yourself, all right, I'm looking at this problem and I can't see a way that God is gonna bring about peace and resolution in this situation, and so I have to act. I gotta do something. That's how it always starts, isn't it? You start questioning his faithfulness, surely he won't come through on this. I've been so stupid previously, he's not gonna be faithful to me now. Or the, the, the mountain that I'm looking at is so big, there's no way that he's gonna do anything, and so I have to act. And then it moves from your heart into your bones. And you say to yourself, well, in order to bring resolution, I do have to make this one compromise. I, it's, I know it's a bad thing, and like when everyone's looking at it objectively, all agree this is a bad thing, this is a, but I gotta do this bad thing for a good reason. And so I have to do this wrong thing because it's gonna bring about a good thing, and so I've gotta compromise in this one area. But then it, it, it spreads from, it starts in your heart, it spreads in your bones, but then it starts spreading outside of you, and this one compromise leads to another compromise, and it starts affecting your family and your friends. Just like it did David. 
Do you notice that it wasn't just David that moved to Ziklag, it was David and 600 other guys and their families? It never stops with you. The moment you make that one compromise, it never relieves the tension. All it does is lead to more compromise. But then it extends outside of you, and then it starts building on itself, and then pretty soon you don't recognize yourself because you're, all you are is just a, a series of compromise after compromise after compromise. Now, I'm using the word compromise because it's our nice, polite way of saying when we make bad decisions, but it's for good reasons. Like, that's the word we throw around. Well, you know, I just, I, had to, I, I compromised in this area, I compromised this. But in reality, the, the word the Bible uses for compromise is called sin. It's sin, it's wickedness. It's not doing a bad thing for a good reason, it's called sin. And when you're watching David do this, what you discover is that living in sin never brings peace and resolution like David thought it would be or like we think it would be. It always only ever leads to more sin. The compromise, the sin, it never fixes the issue. It only ever leads to more sin because when you start down that path, you are starting down a path of foolishness. And that path has lots of deep consequences and repercussions to those decisions. It's never just, well, I have to make this one decision. No, that one decision leads to another bad decision, leads to another bad decision. And pretty soon you're on a path that the Bible would call foolish. You're living the life of a fool if you think that you can fix God-sized problems with your solutions. All right, now let's get to the next one. Go to chapter 28. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war. So now in that map I showed you, now we're, we're heading north up until the top around Endor and around uh, Uh, the mountain that we were talking about. So they gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Ahish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. And David said to Ahish, very well. You shall know what your servant can do. Uh, Vibrato, I'm going to show you what I can do. I know know I've been doing all these other things. You haven't been around, but man, jaw's going to drop when you see what I can do. And he said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now at this point, Samuel had died and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. That comes back in just a moment, but it's important to know that, that Saul had commanded that all the mediums and the necromancers, all the people who like talking to the dead, that like talking to spirits, they got kicked out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunim, and Saul gathered all his Israel, and they camped at Gilboa. So they're at these two kind of uh, opposite areas. Gilboa is this mountain. Israel's gathered over there. Just on the other side of the valley is Shunim. That's where the Philistines are. And Saul saw the army of the Philistines, and he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. 
All right, so the chapter begins with this serious issue. David's lives have finally caught up to him. He's in a place now where he has said, okay, um, I've been fighting for the king, but he hasn't actually been fighting for the king. He's been lying to the king and taking out other enemies of Israel in the meantime. And now the king says, hey, all this great work you've been doing, I want you to do it by my side. I'm gonna go fight Israel and you're gonna be right by me. And I can imagine in David's mind, he's like, well, I can't talk my way out of this one. So um, I'll macho my way out of it. Yeah, of course I'm gonna fight by you, your side, king, and you're gonna see what I can do. Me and my men, we're the, we're the baddest dudes in town. Bring me some Israelites. We're gonna slay them right along your side. And he's probably thinking, oh, I don't know how I'm gonna get out of this situation. And so the tension is building, and you're thinking, all right, David's lies are finally catching up to him. What's gonna happen? And all of a sudden, the author switches gears, and he doesn't tell you what happens. He shows you another person who's also walking a foolish path. See, this is why, this is important. The Bible is a collection of stories that actually happen, but it isn't only a collection of stories that really happen. It is arranged in such a way to capture the uh, audience's attention and draw them into the understanding that there is more going on than we initially can see. And so the author has given us a story of our hero, David, who is now living in sin and making foolish decisions, decisions and now he, he pivots just at the crucial moment, like what's gonna happen to David? He pivots over to Saul and he says, let me show you another guy who is completely godless who is also walking the foolish path. Now this is an interesting uh, approach and the reason why that he's doing this is because the author wants us to understand that sinful choices that we make in our life can absolutely be a byproduct of a deceived heart like David. David wasn't actively trying to rebel against God. He was trying to make the decisions that he felt were best for his family and friends in the moment. And we put that situation right next to another person who is living absolutely godless foolishness. He puts them right next to each other in the story to help us understand that, look, hey, both of those things, your deceived heart and also the godless heart, they're two sides of the same coin. So stop thinking that you're better than the godless if you're walking around living a deceived life. Why are these two sides of the same coin? Because it's all sin. And it doesn't matter if you're just trying to convince yourself it's not, or if you know it's, it's sin and you're doing it anyway, both are two sides of the same coin. Now let's get into the next part of this, verse seven. It says, then Saul said to his servants, seek out for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. What? Now we've already been told that Saul has kicked all of these people out of the land. If you're one of these people who likes talking to the dead and conjuring spirits and playing on Ouija boards and going to get your tarot card reading and constantly looking up in the stars and seeing what your astrology sign is, you got kicked out of the land of Israel. But now Saul is saying, all right, the Lord's not answering me. I've got nowhere to turn, so I'm gonna find somebody who can communicate with the dead, and I think I've got a plan. So his servants say to him, this is the end of seven, behold, there is a medium at Endor. Now a medium is a person who communes with the dead, talks with spirits. 
So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, and he, two men with him, and they came to the woman by the night. And he said, divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. All right, so picture this. It's the middle of the night. Saul's gone with his two men and they're wrapped up in clothes and they're kind of sneaking up in the middle of the night and this witch, she's like, what do you want? He's like, I want you to divine a spirit for me. I'm not gonna tell you who it is. I want you to agree to it before I tell you. She's like, all right. So the woman says to him, surely you know what Saul has done. He's cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord. Oh. He says, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. This is why Saul is here, because he doesn't have the Lord. The Lord's not talking to Saul. And so Saul is promising things in the name of the Lord, but he's completely godless. The Lord's not with Saul. So the woman says, all right, who shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. Now, the reason why she's saying bring up is because at this time, this is before Christ has ascended and, and, and uh, led a host of captives set free and brought uh, the, the redeemed and the people of God out of Abraham's bosom and up into heaven. This is where Sheol is essentially the land of the dead. Don't think of Sheol like hell. Think of Sheol like the afterlife. It's the place of the dead. Okay, and, and in this place, there are lots of different like uh, cities or neighborhoods in Sheol. There's one little corner over here. Uh, New Testament uh, talks about Tartarus. It's, it's where God bound those angels from Genesis 6, where they rebelled uh, and, and, and uh, um, procreated with human women and created Nephilim. They're bound over here in this corner. There's another corner of, the, uh, of Sheol over here, Abraham's bosom. This is where the blessed people are, are waiting for Christ's promised uh, uh, return uh, or, or arrival, and then to bring them up. Then there's this other corner uh, that we would probably classify as like hell, this torturous place of Sheol. And, and so what the conjurer is doing is she's conjuring the spirit up from the place of the dead, this area called Sheol, okay? So in verse 13, or no, verse 12, when the woman saw Samuel, so it worked, okay? So she conjures the spirit and Samuel appears. She cries out with a loud voice and the woman said to Saul, ah, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. She realizes at that moment who this guy is and why, she, why he wants to talk to Samuel. And the king said to her, don't be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, well, I see a God coming up out of the earth. Now that word God in Hebrew is the word Elohim. Elohim is a Hebrew word that means God, that's the English translation, but it doesn't carry the same connotation that we have. When we say God, we think God, God, like Yahweh, he's God. He's all powerful, omniscient, he's, he's everything, he's all powerful. But the Hebrew word for God, Elohim, it just means a spiritual being. It is a, it is a being or a creature from that other realm. It, it is not an embodied being, it is a disembodied being, it is a, it is a spirit. All right, so, so uh, angels are referred to often as Elohim. Fallen angels are referred to Elohim. God is referred to Elohim, but there are no Elohim like Yahweh, okay? 
You follow me? So this is not like, this is not a polytheistic religion. There are not many gods. There is one God. You follow? But there are many spiritual beings in this realm, and that's the Hebrew word for them. So she says, I see this spirit, this God, I see this thing popping up out of the earth. And he said to her, what is his appearance? And he said, an old man is coming up, and he's wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Now, in the last chapter, we met David, and he was thinking to himself, I'm out of options, so I'm going to make my own call. And in this chapter, we see Saul making the same decision. I'm out of options, so I'm going to make my own call, and I'm going to compromise. What's the compromise? The compromise is I'm going to do the thing that God told me not to do. Now, there is a long laundry list of commands against this kind of stuff. Saul had previously banned mediums and necromancy because the law of God banned them. Banned them in Exodus 22:18, Leviticus 19:31, 20, 27, Deuteronomy 18:10 through 11. All of these practices were banned. But here's the thing: they weren't banned because they didn't work or they were make-believe. Now think about this. At your house, if you've got kids, think about all the house rules in your home. I imagine that you don't have any rules in your home about things that your kids literally can't do. So there's probably no rule in your house, hey, there's no flying around the house. There's no point in making that rule because they literally can't do it. Hey, in this house, there's no breathing underwater. You're not allowed to do that. You don't make laws against things that they can't do that don't make any sense. You make laws against things that they can do and are bad for them. Don't play in the street because if you play in the street, you're gonna get hit by a car. God made this law not because mediums and necromancy and talking to the spirit realm is something you can't do. He made the law because it's something you can do and you shouldn't be doing it because it's dangerous. Because when you start trying to talk to the spirit realm and try to, uh, and, 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 and maybe it's like some game at some party, you want to talk to the dead, or you want to you go to a tarot card reader, or you want somebody to read your fortune, you are playing with dangerous, dangerous stuff. And the reason why God commands us as humans to not go playing with the spirit realm is because when you start trying to talk to that realm, you don't know who's going to answer. In this situation, Samuel popped up because through God's providence, he wanted Samuel to deliver a message to Saul. We're going to figure out the message in a minute. But when you start messing with this stuff, I'm, you know who's going to answer you? It's not your grandpa. It's a demon. Demons are going to answer you. That's who wants to talk to you. But they're not going to, they're not going to appear to you as a demon. They're going to appear to you like an angel of light. They're going to appear to you as, as, as an angelic being, and, and they're going to have some kind of new, uh, unbelievable message uh, that contradicts or adds to the gospel. And he's going to deliver it to you on like, I don't know, like golden plates or something. You hear me? These demons aren't just going to appear as demons. They're going to appear as angels of light, or they're going to, they're going to appear as your dead loved ones. And they're going to want to start manipulating you because that's what they love doing. They'll appear as gods, ancient gods, who have ancient knowledge and mysteries that they would happily trade for you to get more knowledge and more power if you just follow them. 
Demons appearing or taking the form as interstellar alien species who want to just trade some exciting new technology if you just trust that they are a superior race to you who have the image of God. Are you following how foolish this is? Look, I trust that as wise believers, you're not messing around with this, but on the off chance that you think that you can reach some new level of spiritual awareness because some guy on some podcast told you how great it is to start meditating and commuting with the universe and getting to the center of everything and, and all of your questions are answered. Look at, don't do it. Don't go there. Trust me, you don't want any part of that. Okay? Christ is Lord. Avoid it. These commands aren't in here because they don't mean anything. They aren't, they're in here because they do mean something and they're dangerous. That's not your territory. Stay out of it. But Saul is messing with that stuff like a fool and Samuel actually appears. And I don't think the witch is screaming out because she's surprised that what she's doing actually worked. I think she was in this business because it did work and it made a lot of money. I think she screams because she realized that she was lied to and it's Saul the one who's asking. Let's go to verse 15 and find out what Samuel said. Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I should do. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me? since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy. Why are you waking me up? If the Lord doesn't want to talk to you, I don't want to talk to you. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Why? Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek back from 1 Samuel chapter 15. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow, not just you, but your sons will be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. And Saul fell at once, full length onto the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, behold, your servant has obeyed you. I've taken my life in my hand, and I've listened to you. I've listened to what you have said to me. Now therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go your own way. And he refused and said, I, I will not eat. But his servants together with the woman urged him and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had, fat, had a fatted calf in the house and she quickly killed it and she took flour and kneaded it and baked it and unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants and they ate and they rose and they went away that night. Now just a pause, like could you imagine how long you'd have to wait for dinner? Like I read some of this, I'm just like, well that was a really kind gesture, but what is that, like three hours? Like the thing's still mooing, you gotta kill it, and then you gotta knead the bread, like we're here all night. So Saul 
he finally gets the answer to his prayer. He's been praying, Lord, what am I going to do about the Philistines? And the Lord won't answer. And he starts praying, he starts praying, Lord, what am I going to do about the Philistines? And he doesn't have any priests because, oh, that's right, he killed all the priests. And he can't get an answer from Samuel because Samuel's dead. So he conjures up Samuel and he says, Samuel, Lord, I, uh, Samuel, I need an answer to my prayer. Please, what am I going to do about the Philistines? And Samuel finally answers his prayer and he says, uh, here's what you're going to do about the Philistines. You're going to die. That's what you're going to do. You're not changing this, man. Nothing is changing. What I said before still stands. I'm coming back from the grave to remind you of this. You're going to die, but not just you. You're going to die. Your sons are going to die. And all of Israel is going to lose the battle. Now leave me alone and let me go back to sleep. At this point, the story pivots to the witch hedging her bets against protection with hospitality. She, does, she really does not want to get prosecuted for doing this thing for the king. And so she's acting super nice. So let me cook you this nice meal. It'll only take four hours. Just, just be still. And so he eats and he leaves with a full belly, but an empty heart. And so now we start looking at what the author is trying to do before he even tells us the story of the battle in 29. These two stories sit next to each other because David is walking in disobedience. And what does it lead to? More disobedience. That's the lesson. You can't walk in sin and disobedience and think you're going to get out of sin and disobedience. It only leads to more. But then it escalates in the story of Saul. Saul's walking in sin and disobedience, but it doesn't just lead to more sin and disobedience. It actually leads to total destruction. And that's what the author is trying to seize us with today. The reality that if you think that you can live your life in sin and disobedience and get out of it, you're lying to yourself. You're on a foolish path. It will only lead to more sin and disobedience to the point where at the end of your life, it's going to be led to destruction. And you will be suffering eternally for that. Now, these choices that we make, either wise or foolish, as I said at the beginning, have cascading effects or consequences or deep roots associated with them. When you look at David, his submission to God in one area of his life, previously in the stories, like the way he confronts Goliath, it has this cascading effect of everyone starts knowing his reputation and everyone wants to be on Team David. All the girls start singing about him. All of the guys want to, want to fight alongside of him. His obedience to God word, God's word brings these repercussions of, of good stuff in his life. The consequences are amazing in his life. But then you see Saul, he's making foolish decisions and it leads to more foolish decisions. People start departing him, God starts uh, di dismantling his um, entire kingdom. So the idea that wisdom has consequences and foolishness has consequences brings us to the conversation that we need to have with ourselves today. If I'm looking from the word of God that there are examples from David and uh, examples from Saul, the guy I would call the hero and the guy that I would call the villain, they're both examples of the same uh, foolishness or the same walking the foolish path. What the word of God is telling me is that nobody is immune from this. On your best day, you aren't immune from walking the path of foolishness and convincing yourself, I can just make this one compromise and it won't matter. 
I know God has a plan for the way that a man and a woman are supposed to be living together or or, or supposed to be uh, in relationship with one another. And the only time they're supposed to be living together is within the covenant of marriage. And and that's who they're supposed to be um, celebrating intimacy with. And that's their family. Um, But but I, I, I just feel like financially, it's a better choice if I move in with my girlfriend now. Do you follow, you follow where I'm going with this? The idea that like, well, I know God told me to, to do this and go here and, and, and live here, but it's painful here. I don't like it here. I don't like the people. I don't like the smells. I don't like how much I'm making. I don't like anything about it. So I know God told me this, but, but I'm just going to kind of do this one other little thing over here. You're lying to yourself if you think that if you think that making decisions that way is going to bring about peace and release the tension in your life. It's not. It's only going to bring more consequences and more sin. And the reason why is because being obedient or disobedient is never about just being obedient and disobedient. It is about the consequences and the deep roots that grow from those decisions. So as you're standing here today, we've been presented with two people. One person is walking a foolish path because he said in his heart, this is the only option I have, so I'm gonna choose to go this way. Is that you? Are you, are you walking a path now because you have, you have convinced yourself that God has no role to play in whatever's going on, his mercies can't be working, there's no new grace that can be discovered, the only option you had is to make your own decisions and walk this path? Or are you just completely living an ungodless life? It doesn't matter what God's word says. What matters most is what you say. You don't like following what he says. His ways are inconvenient. They always get in the way. So you're just going to ignore those. As good Christian people, we look at people like that and we're like, oh, you're a fool. But then we look at the path we're on and we realize we're walking a fool's path. And why are we walking the path, the same path as this guy? Not because we're ungodless, but because we thought we could compromise and it didn't matter. So this is what's presented to us today, to consider what path you're walking on. Are you walking the path of the fool? And it doesn't matter how you got on that path, whether it was just deception or outright ungodliness, it doesn't matter, same sides of the same coin, you're on the foolish path. Do you want to continue down that road, reaping the benefits of that foolishness? Do you really want your reputation being spread all throughout the workplace or all throughout school that you are the person who shacks up with wickedness, that that is your reputation. That's how people think of you. Because I'm telling you, it doesn't matter how far you've gone down that road, you can get off at any time you want. I don't care if you've been walking down that road for 10 years, today is the day you can get off that road. And it is simple as this. Turn to the Lord and start obeying his commands. Ask God, Lord, put me on the righteous path and give me a desire for righteousness. I have gone so far down the road of foolishness that every time I pick up my phone, the first place I go is something that's unhealthy for me. I don't even know how to get out of this. Help me. Cry out in that prayer and watch what God will do. He will put you on the wise path. He will take away those old desires. He will give you new desires. And I'm telling you, once that starts happening, you're going to start experiencing the deep roots of fruitfulness. All of a sudden, that relationship, that tension that you had with your mom, because she can't trust you, because every time you pick up your phone, it's something you don't need to be doing. All of a sudden, that relationship gets flipped. And now all of a sudden, everything is, is fruitful again. 
That relationship that you have with your coworkers, when you go into work and you're constantly being found on your phone or doing something you don't need to be doing and no one trusts you, no one likes having you around because you're not a hard worker, you're lazy, you show up late to work constantly. You don't have to keep walking down that path and saying every time you get fired, look what they did to me. Honey, they did it to, you did it to yourself. Like they didn't do it to you. You did it to you because you're on the path of foolishness, but you don't have to stay on that path. That's the good news. There's a different path to walk on. You can change directions and you can start reaping the benefits of fruitfulness. Your entire character can change in the workplace. People can know your name and not think lousy, worthless, unfruitful, not worth my time. They can, they can see you, they can, they, can, they can look at what God has done in your life and they can say, honest, filled with character, trustworthy, steadfast, filled with love, worth my time. I want to talk to this person. And then that opens the door for you to share the good news about this path you're on, the gospel. So this is the message for today. Consider what path you're on, and if you're walking on the foolish path, it doesn't matter how you got on there, you can get off today by crying out to God. Amen? All right, let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.